Well, we're back in Colossians this morning, really picking up right where we left off last week, where you'll recall that Paul has just really laid bare the fatal flaw in self-made, man-made religion. That is, it relies always on self-sufficiency, and it will always push against the ordinary rhythms of grace, no matter what form it takes. But once Paul has deconstructed this man-made religion, what's left? He doesn't leave us there. And perhaps this is helpful for you if you've heard discussions around the word deconstruction in our time. He doesn't just leave us there. He goes on to reconstruct or to paint a beautiful canvas of the new life that is in Christ Jesus, the kind of religion that flows out of a changed heart through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's where we pick up today, and this will really be a two-parter with the second part coming next week. So young worshipers, in this passage, both this week and next week, there's going to be a list of things that Paul tells us to put off and things that he tells us to put on. So I want you to, to in, your, in your children's bulletin, in your work for young worshipers, write down the things, you can list them there, the things that he tells us to put off and the things that he tells us to put on. And would you stand for the reading of God's word from Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have Put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but these words of our God stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, would you fill us now with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that we may walk in a manner worthy of you, fully pleasing to you and bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of you, being strengthened in all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to you, our Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Amen. Would you be seated? In our recent Philosophy of Ministry discussions, there's a couple dozen or so of us meeting uh, every now and again to talk about refining 
uh, our philosophy of ministry here, and, and we were recently talking about the topic of church membership and about how to call people to commitment to their membership vows and to a countercultural sense of belonging and about how difficult it is to have conversations about folks leaving the church. And for a while, the discussion was around how to have those conversations about vows and important things like that. But then somebody in the group, I think it was Cheryl, but correct me if I'm misquoting, somebody said something so brilliant. Yes, we need to be calling people to keep their vows. That's important. But we also need to be calling people into the beauty of church membership. In other words, it's not just about the difficulty of keeping church vows. No more than your marriage is only or all about the difficulty of keeping your marriage vows. Maybe at times it's that. But it's also, and perhaps optimistically, mostly about the beauty and blessing in church membership. And that's why sociological studies will pretty widely show that communities with a robust institutional involvement in the church tend to thrive. Less poverty, less abuse, and all kinds of other things. That's not to say those things aren't present in the church. Of course they are. We're a gathering of sinners justified by faith. But the point is, Christianity and participation in it is not merely about leaving something behind. It's about gaining something new, something beautiful, something worth pursuing. And when Paul deconstructs the kind of self-made religion that we talked about last week, legalism and secularism and more, he doesn't just leave us there. He actually goes on to paint a beautiful canvas of the new life and membership of those who are in Christ. It's a bit like a major theme of one of my favorite authors, Wendell Berry, whose books revolve around what he calls the membership of a small Kentucky town. That is, the people in the town living together in interconnected dependence. And he often uses contrasts to illustrate the beauty of membership, like the time that the town barber, Jaber Crow, tells the story of his own life, his belonging in the town. And near the end of his life, he reflects like this. I've read this to you before, but I want to read it again. He says, This is, as I've said and believe, a book about heaven. But I must say, too, that it has been a close call. For I have wondered sometimes if it would not finally turn out to be a book about hell, where we fail to love one another, where we hate and destroy one another, where we destroy the things we need the most, where we see no hope and have no faith, where we are needy and alone, where things that ought to stay together fall apart, where there's such a groaning travail of selfishness in all its forms, where we love one another and die, where we must lose everything to know what we had. But over against that bleak picture, the whole book tells a different story of the town's embrace of this odd duck barber who once trained to be a pastor. And who would go down to the to neighboring towns on some weekends to dip his toe in the pool of debauchery. And who was so poor that he had to take a side job as the town grave digger. And that made him pretty morbidly reflective on death. But interestingly, his barbershop became really the town watering hole. And the men of the town would come together there for community and 
mutual encouragement and help. And his shop was a hub from which people heard about opportunities to bear one another's burdens. It's a beautiful story, and it paints a beautiful picture of membership in a place where it almost didn't happen. That's a little bit like what Paul's doing here in Colossians 2 and 3. He says, hey church, realize the virtual hell that self-made religion will keep you in, in all of its forms. Slavery to the law, not freedom and grace, but instead lean into the story of the beauty and belonging of the new life. So over the next two weeks, we'll glimpse that beauty in Colossians 3, where we come to see that in contrast to self-made religion, the new life in Christ results in grace-driven sanctification and community. And this contrast is rooted in an entirely new mode of existence. There's no reason to beat around the bush. Paul gives it to you straight. You have died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. So, set your mind on the things of heaven. But what in the world does that mean? Well, perhaps for some traditions, it means a dualistic dichotomy between mind and body. Hey, think about the the clouds and the angels and the streets of gold, and don't think about the things you can touch. Or perhaps it's the proverbial, get your head out of the gutter, But no, actually, that would be playing the false teacher's game. This would be man-made religion and transcendence by effort and all that other junk, right? The false teachers started with earth and human efforts to reach the divine. But Paul plants this new life in heaven where Christ is and where your life is hidden, protected, kept safe with him, because of his death and resurrection and yours with him. The false teachers wanted to bring heaven to earth on the strength of their backs, but Paul actually raises our hearts into heaven where Christ has earned a seat for us and from whence he shall come again to transform the earth. You see, what he's getting at here is that for the Christian, salvation is not a transport off this rock. Instead, it's a whole new compass, a whole new map by which to orient our thinking about the things of this world and our living into this new mode of existence. How many of you were driving before there was GPS? Remember those dark days, right? Whole different ballgame. I remember when I was a traveling musician in the early 2000s, we didn't have GPS, and so for each tour each trip around the country, we'd print out maps to every place that we wanted to go. It's like, here's the local coffee shop, here's the local chicken place, and and here's the place that we're staying, and all that kind of stuff, right? Sounds pretty radical. On one occasion, our, our, one of our band members, who was kind of the self-proclaimed navigator, he had printed out a whole notebook of maps, and he was taking us to the performance venue in Oklahoma City, and I'm driving, And he's navigating, and as we're getting close, I'm kind of going, man, this doesn't look like the arts district, you know? Next thing you know, we pull up at the Oklahoma State Capitol building, because that's where the star was on the map. He said, oops. There's no no typing in the name of the place and having a British woman give you line-by-line directions, right? 
Think, remember those times. But Paul is saying that the change in the new life is like that. It's a whole new navigation system. Actually, a whole new redemptive historical reality. That's what he's getting at with the whole you have died part. You are literally dead to the old order. The order of self-made religion and legalism and secularism and slavery to the law. That is already objectively true about you if you are a Christian. You are dead to the law. You are in a new mode of existence, made alive in Christ, not by any effort of your own, but by his death and resurrection. In theological terms, we call this the indicative. It is already true about you, and there's nothing you can do about it if you're a believer in Christ. And not only are you dead to the old order, but you, you, your, your very life is wrapped up in Jesus, who is the epitome of the new order. That's why your life is hidden with him, kept safe as you await his coming, when you too will appear with him in glory. See, the idea here is not that heaven is some departure from earth, but that in a sense, heaven is a reality for you now, spiritually in Christ, and that one day the sky will split open at the sound of a trumpet and Jesus will return and heaven and earth will be joined and those who are in Jesus will be vindicated by their appearing with him in renewed and redeemed bodies that can fully and perfectly glory in the joys of heaven for all eternity. It sounds crazy, but Paul says, you need to recognize that that power already resides in you now. And therefore, you need to orient your life around a whole new way of existence. You have, in a sense, a whole new wardrobe. But the problem for you and me is that we still so often put on our old clothes, don't we? That even though the indicative is true... We are in Christ. We are new creatures, part of this new creation and experiencing its power even now, even now. Even though that's all still true, we want to wear our old world clothes. That's why he says, put to death what is earthly in you and put off, literally undress the old self. Isn't that interesting? Again, notice the, the contrast in direction. So the false teachers that we're dealing with in chapter 2, they say, strive to achieve communion with the divine. But the gospel says, you have communion with the divine, so strive to live into that reality. This is really the classic Christian doctrine of sanctification. That is, the work of God for those who are his to gradually renew us, to grow us in grace and Christian maturity. And it's based on the objective reality of our justification, our being made right with God. That is, we can't earn our sanctification any more than we can earn our place in God's family. But at the same time, it's a gift that God calls us to participate in. We have real God-given, Holy Spirit-empowered work to do here, not to earn our way to God, but because Christ has earned it for us. Christians for centuries have struggled with this question. If I am a new creature 
in Christ. If all these things are objectively true about me, why do I still sin? That's not a new struggle, so you're in good company. Here's an illustration I found helpful in explaining it. Those of you who are nautical types, if you, if you purchase a brand new sailboat, and uh, it's, it's beautifully constructed, brand new, never touched the water, fresh coat of paint, pristine, just beautiful, and, and you purchase that boat and you plop it down in the marina at White Rock, what's going to happen almost immediately under the surface? Almost immediately, there's going to be junk that starts to attach itself to the bottom of that sailboat, right? It's barnacles and algae and all that junk, right? And so there's some maintenance to do. You're constantly ha- having to scrape off the barnacles. And, and sanctification is a little bit like that. You are new. Not just partially new. Not just almost new. You are new. New. All the way new. But the work now is to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be at work to scrape off the barnacles of sin that can so easily cling to us. And historically, the church has looked at passages like this and other biblical teaching to categorize this ongoing work under two headings, mortification and vivification. Mortification is the putting off or the putting to death of your old ways, putting to death your sin by the power of Christ. And that's Paul's aim in the verses we'll look at today. Mortification, putting off. Next week we'll talk about putting on. What does it mean to do that? But here we're talking about putting off. And look at some of the things he tells us to put to death. Sexual immorality. The Greek word there is porneia. It really encompasses any kind of sexual sin that deviates from God's created order. Impurity, even broader, all kinds of moral impurity. Evil desires, covetousness or greed, and of course all of these encompassing some form of idolatry. Notice too that he goes back again just a few verses later. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, sins of the tongue, right? He deals in these lists with both external manifestations of sin and their internal roots. Do you see that? Things like evil desires and anger and inordinate passions. So I think this is really important because the false teachers, especially the ascetic kinds of ones, were arguing that the way to transcend sin was by punishing the body, by outward physical struggle, which would produce inward transcendence. Maybe the ancient equivalent of fake it till you make it, right? Well, Paul is not entirely unconcerned with outward manifestations. If you are engaging in slander, he says, stop. Put it to death. But also put to death the roots of such things. This is really the the classic Protestant understanding of sin, that it has both roots that then work their way out into fruits. And the way to mortify your sin is to lay acts to the root of it, even as you deal with its external manifestations. Let me give you an example. A while back I was uh, coming home angry a lot, just angry from the day or whatever was going on in my own heart. And I knew that I was 
sinning against my family because I was walking in the door and just, just angry and I wanted to stop, but I couldn't figure out how. Try as hard as I might, I couldn't seem to disconnect from my anger when I walked in the door, but uh, my counselor, who's a wise woman, helped me to think through both the outward and the physical symptoms of this inward reality that was going on, and she said, hey, so um, when was the last time you exercised? I said, uh, 2007. Um, She said, okay, listen, exercise isn't the answer, but you aren't going to be able to deal with the stuff down there if you don't start doing some very simple things to help you deal with them. And that's a bit like mortification. It may start within by doing some real heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching work, or it may start by laying down the the thing on the outside, laying down the booze so that you can actually deal with what's driving you to abuse it. It may start with confronting the idols of your heart with a trusted friend or counselor, or it may start, like if your idol is overwork, it may start with just getting some sleep. The point is this. It's not some mechanistic process by which you achieve transcendence. It's a gradual process granted by what Jesus has earned for you empowered by the Holy Spirit and energized by this new mode of existence into which you are called to live. And it's also a work that is to be undertaken in community. After all, this passage is addressed to the church. And next week, we will particularly see how the gospel sort of um, mode of existence in the new life involves a lot of one-anothering, things you're supposed to do to one another and with one another. Because not only do you, individual Christian, have a new mode of existence, you are made to be part of a new humanity. Verse 9, do not lie to one another. Why? Well, because you have put off the old self and put on the new, which is being renewed. Note, it's not renewing itself. It's being renewed. It's a work that God is doing and calling you to participate in. Being renewed after his image into a community. A place where there's neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Instead, Christ is all and in all. What does this mean? Why why does Paul turn now to focus on these kinds of religious and social orders? What's the point? Well, Paul really covers in this little list all manner of social external boundary markers. Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, the major categories of religious background in the ancient church. Doesn't matter if you grew up here or you're new to the party, Christ is all. Barbarian and Scythian, really two ways of thinking about lower class people in the ancient world. Barbarian is an onomatopoeia. It was a derogatory way that the Greeks spoke about these people and how they communicated, like bar, 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 bar. That's where barbarian comes from. They were the lower social order, and Scythians were kind of the worst of them. And then slave and free, social and legal status, doesn't matter, Christ is all. One commentator, F.F. Bruce, captures really how stunning this verse could be in context. He says, perhaps in this way the gospel made its deepest impression on the pagan world. 
A slave might be a leader in a Christian church by virtue of his spiritual stature and ability. And freeborn members of the church would humbly and gratefully accept his direction. Make no mistake, Paul is saying here that the death and resurrection of Christ have ushered in a new kind of humanity. A whole new economy. One that doesn't erase cultural distinction, but absolutely disregards them in the construction of this new society such that the rich man is poor and the poor man is rich and the uneducated man can often be the righteous man and the uninitiated into the Christian ease of traditionalism has an equal standing with the catechized and where the norms and values that elevate men and women in the old order have no place in the new creation where power is not dispensed for the sake of the one who wields it, where influence is about giving your life away rather than gaining a following, where humiliation comes before exaltation and suffering before glory, where membership is about what you can give before what you can get, where we build each other up instead of tearing each other down, where we hope before we suspect, where we listen before we accuse, where we move toward one another before we move apart, where we lay down our right to be right for the sake of another and where we regard no one according to the flesh by how they look or how much money they have or what color their skin is or what kind of side of the aisle they come from or where they went to college, but instead where we look at someone and we see Christ in them and through them and where he is exalted in our midst. That's what the new humanity is about That's the thing that Jaber Crow was worried about missing out on. And that's the thing I so desperately long for us not to miss, church. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, you have granted to us this new mode of existence, this new way of living, not by our effort, but by the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ firstborn from the dead, author of the new creation. He has made us new. Our lives are hidden with Christ. And so today, give us strength and power to live into that reality. Help us to know that that strength and power comes from the ordinary rhythms of grace, being a part of this community, hearing your words, singing your word, confessing sin, forgiving sin, eating at your table, Renew us, restore us, give us strength for the journey in Christ's name. Amen.